Let's pray together. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord Jesus Christ, we proclaim this morning that you are the worthy one, worthy as the Lamb who was slain, the eternal Son of God who offered himself to save us from our sin and the wrath that is due to us. And as we read in the scriptures, you've received the kingdom and the people. You've received the power and the glory and the honor in your ascension. And at your return, your glory will forever be as our Savior. And for us as the saved and glorified with you, ruling and living in the kingdom of God. We pray this morning that you would bless your word to us and that you would reveal to us even more of how you have accomplished all of this on our behalf. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study on the Gospel of Luke today. But before that, I just want to thank you all for praying for my surgery, which I just had two weeks ago. And uh, so as you can see, I'm still here and uh, standing. So, uh, so thank you so much for your prayers, for the strength. And the doctor said we're very pleased and said everything was 100% successful, just as they expected it. So thank you. Yes, and thanks to the Lord for all these things, as so many of us know. Well, in our study of uh, Luke's gospel, we've heard over and over again from Jesus about what he expects of those people who really want to be his disciples and to follow him. And Jesus has been asking his disciples and, and all of us really to give up everything for him. And that's been challenging at times. It's also been very inspiring, I hope. I hope you found it refreshing for your faith as well and rewarding to hear. And I really hope that you take time in your life to occasionally just sit down with the Gospel of Luke and meditate on the Word of God and the things that we've been studying together so that the Lord can minister it even more deeply into your mind and your heart. Well, in our passage today, we're going to hear from Jesus not what he demands of his disciples, but what he would do for us, and that he would give up his all for us. 
And we're led to consider again his death on the cross and to think through that a little bit more deeply. You know, is the death of Christ simply a historical fact to you? Maybe with some religious meaning? Or is it much, much more? Do you see it as part of God's glorious plan and his personal plan and significance for you? I hope you will as we continue this morning in Luke 18. So you can turn in your Bibles there starting in verse 31 or follow along in your worship folder where it's printed for you. I'm going to read it up front for us today. So Jesus, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired about what this meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Well, today we're going to be reminded in our passage about our Savior's cross and resurrection and what it means to actually put our faith in Him and His work. Because saving faith pleads for mercy from God, from Jesus Christ, who saves us by His cross and resurrection. And so, saving faith could be seen as two steps in our passage today. The first one, in verses 31 to 34, is seeing Jesus for who He really is and understanding what he's done, seeing him for who he really is and understanding what he's done, verses 31 to 34. And then in verses 35 to 43, taking action on that. Because saving faith is not simply an intellectual activity. It requires action. And so, as we learn from the blind man, looking to him for mercy and following him as a disciple. And so, you know, Luke, as I've mentioned before, has these series of teachings on what is true faith prior to narrating for us the actual events that transpired when Jesus was murdered and when he rose from the dead. And so we looked earlier at the Pharisee and the tax collector parable and the illustration about the children. And from those, we learned about the qualities of acceptable faith. And then we looked at the rich young ruler and teaching from that encounter, and we learned that what is the kind of faith that's true faith that's going to really obtain eternal life. And we're going to continue today with, some fam or today with a famous story about the blind man, Bartimaeus, and then Zacchaeus the following week, and finally another parable, and then Luke gets into the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection. So why all of these stories and teachings about faith before that part of the story? It's because that's the object of faith. That's the kind of faith that's going to bring salvation and forgiveness of sins to our lives. It's a faith that has to be placed directly in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has become man. 
It's a faith that has to be placed firmly upon the work of Jesus Christ alone in his cross to sacrifice himself in our place for our sins and in his resurrection. That's how we obtain full redemption. So let's look at our passage together this morning. And so the first step in exercising saving faith is really seeing Jesus for who he is and what he's done and understanding that. And we come to this verses 31 to 33. It's known as the third passion prediction. You might even in your Bibles have a heading that the editors inserted. It's not part of the scripture text, but the editors insert that for your reading pleasure and ease. And uh, it's often seen as the third passion prediction. So I'll read it again to you. Uh, And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, the reason it's called the third one is because it's really the third official announcement to the 12 in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts of Jesus making it very clear what he's going to do. And it's most fully recorded in one section in Mark, Mark 10.32, where we read this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what he was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he'll rise again. But in the Gospel of Luke, this is not the third time. In the Gospel of Luke, this is the seventh time, at least the seventh time, that Jesus has referred very specifically to the crowning events that are about to take place in Jerusalem. So if you want, you could just flip through your Bibles briefly. I'll just quickly cover them. But back in Luke chapter 5, verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement and was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the statement. Luke 12, 50. But I have a baptism to undergo, Jesus said, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Luke 13, 32. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, referring to Herod, it's, it's an insult, so go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And Luke 17, 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So the point here is that this is more of a reminder in Luke's gospel than a prediction. This third passion prediction, if you will, or Luke's most recent reminder to the 12 contains the most detail. And we're going to be covering all of those details. Luke will be covering them as he tells the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Notice that in his prediction here, his reminder, there are seven verbs that stand out. He's being given over. Jesus will be mocked. He'll be mistreated. He'll be spit upon. He'll be scourged, killed, 
and rise again. And all of these things are going to be described in detail by Luke. Also in Luke, notice, that's unique and particular to this passage, is the statement that this is going to complete or fulfill or accomplish, whatever your translation says, all of the prophets. And it picks up a strong theme that we've seen in the Gospel of Luke so far, beginning at the very beginning in Luke chapter 1, all the way to the very end of Luke chapter 24. And perhaps you remember how frequently at the beginning of the Gospel account, the word fulfillment just keeps repeating itself and repeating itself. And we're getting closer and closer to the heart of that accomplishment of God's redemptive plan in Christ. And it's not always clear when the the New Testament writers say things like this, but the prophets are being fulfilled, explicitly which ones they're referring to, because so frequently they're understood as a message as a whole and what they testify to. A few that might be mentioned here that would be directly mentioned or referenced would be Daniel 7, because it talks about the Son of Man, how Jesus refers to himself. But then, of course, as Jesus describes what's going to take place and regarding him, you think of the servant songs of Isaiah, particularly the third and the fourth song in Isaiah 50 and 53. So let me just read those passages to you. So we see the glory in Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. But then at the same time, you have this glorious picture from the prophets about the Son of Man, and there are other passages that could be referred to, but then you also have this suffering that's mentioned. Jesus lips in the same paragraph in Luke. And so we read in the third song of Isaiah, Isaiah 56, I give my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not ashamed. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be disgraced. In Isaiah 53, the fourth song, Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You see, the impending death of Jesus Christ is no surprise or tragedy of history. It's been the planned eternal will of God from the very beginning. And the time is very near now. They're on their way to Jerusalem for that very purpose. The disciples don't even really understand what's going on. They don't even accept it. They've not been able to handle any of these passion predictions along the way. And then in verse 34, we read these three parallel statements. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So the twelve, this is how they're described. It's not that what Jesus said was unintelligible. He spoke what they understood, but they just couldn't see how this would all fit together for the plan of the Messiah. I mean, consider the prophecies that we just read. The glory of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. That's what the kingdom is supposed to be like. 
That's who the Messiah is. That's how he's going to be honored. And then we read about the suffering servants of Isaiah, like in chapters 50 and 53, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit together, and they don't really want to hear about it. I mean, how can a dying, humiliating, excruciating death be glorious? And so the disciples are fearful, confused, because it's not how they conceived of the Messiah. It's not how they conceived of the kingdom coming. And to them, it sounds like defeat, not victory. Maybe even to some of us who've not heard the storyline before. But it's the combination of their inability and God's ordained timing that we've seen so many times in Luke that are put together. There's nothing new to Bible readers to read these kinds of statements, people's inability and God's ordained timing for things. It's nothing new to us personally, probably, either. I mean, God alone decides when and what people are going to understand and put together. And God would grant them understanding after Jesus' resurrection, and it would be all clear to them. And then they would preach that to us, and we would see Jesus for who he is and understand what he has done. And that's been clearly made known by the apostles to the church and to the whole world. In fact, that's why we have the Gospel of Luke, what we just read. So how is your understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection? I mean, many of us grow up in church and know the historical facts and maybe can even answer some doctrinal questions about his death and resurrection, but there's a big difference between knowing the gospel intellectually and knowing it spiritually. And that's a common experience, so don't be embarrassed if that's you. I mean, that was my experience. I grew up in a traditional church, and uh, we had a cross above the altar. I just thought it was a cool decoration growing up as a kid. I knew it had some religious meaning. But, you know, is the death of Christ simply this historical fact or holding some religious meaning to you? Or is it much, much more that it's part of God's glorious plan and has significance for you personally? Because I also remember the day when God decided he was going to open my mind to the truth of the gospel. And I came to understand spiritually and personally and powerfully what that cross meant in Jesus' death for my sins. There's a world of difference in being blind and then being made to see. And that's exactly where we're going next, and that's why Luke tells the story next. If the first step is exercising, saving faith, and seeing and understanding who Jesus is, the next step is taking action on that. And that is crying out to him for mercy and following him as a disciple. And so we see in this next section, the blind man first sees Jesus by faith, and then he sees Jesus by sight. In verses 35 to 39, we read, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now this story, as you probably are aware, has parallels, because it's such an important story, um, in Matthew 20 and in Mark 10. In Mark's recounting of the experience, he mentions one particular man, and his name is Bartimaeus. Perhaps the most memorable of the two that Matthew mentions as he tells the storyline. 
And Luke himself picks out one of them. And both Matthew and Mark have this episode taking place upon leaving Jericho, while Luke mentions entering the city. Perhaps a better translation, if you have it in English here, is in the vicinity of Jericho. Mark hints as well in his gospel that Jesus has been going in and out in this area, performing things. Well, anyway, the blind man and Luke could be Bartimaeus or his friend, although it's been convenient throughout history to just refer to him simply as Bartimaeus here, even in Luke's account. But the story is simple. The story is predictable. I mean, you see it's coming. You know exactly what blindness refers to. Not only actual blindness, but spiritual blindness. And so this blind man's begging on the side of the road. He hears this large group of people going by, asks what's going on, learns that Jesus is coming by, and so he cries out loudly, Jesus, son of David. He knows he's the Messiah. Have mercy on me. And he knows who Jesus is because he has a huge reputation for the last two years as he's been going around ministering in the area. He knows who Jesus is because he knows Scripture. He knows prophecy. And then, of course, he really truly knows him because... He already has faith in him. Remember the angel's words to Mary at the beginning of Luke's gospel? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This blind man knows these kinds of truths about who Jesus is. as the eternal Son of God who has become man. He knows these things in his heart, not in great detail, but he puts his faith in Jesus Christ as the one who can save him, who can heal him, who can do all of these things. Eventually, it would be all made much, much clearer. But those in front of the entourage unmercifully rebuke him, and perhaps they think he's a bother and a nuisance, and it should remind us of the story that Luke just told about what the disciples did regarding mothers who were bringing their infants and their children to Jesus. They were considered as a nuisance. These people considered the blind man a nuisance. But the blind man, like the children, become models and examples. So maybe these people didn't like him using that term, son of David, because they weren't quite sure if this really was that son of David yet. Well, it's been observed throughout the centuries that the blind man here sees even though he's blind, while the disciples are blind, even though they see. You read commentators all the way back to the early church. The blind man sees, even though he's blind, while the disciples are blind, even though they see. And this rebuke, then, upon this man just encourages his faith all the more. They just pour gasoline on the fire. And so he's just going to cry out all the louder for Jesus, son of David, to have mercy on him. You know, sometimes that same social dynamic works its way out in our lives as well. Perhaps you can remember in your own life, or maybe it's happening to you right now, where you're starting to see and understand who Jesus really is and what he's accomplished and how it actually might be for you, that you could have your sins forgiven. And you start to inquire, cry out, if you will, for Jesus for salvation. But your friends and your family who are religious people tell you not to be so bold, not be so direct in your faith in Jesus Christ, to not embarrass the family, or to think that you're better than the rest of us 
who don't see Jesus the same way with the same fervor. Well, the instruction would be to keep on crying out like the blind man. Don't be discouraged. Let those kinds of things be an encouragement to you because it's been the experience of many disciples throughout the whole history of the world, the history of the church, and probably many of us in this very room in the way our families have not appreciated our devotion to Jesus Christ. Well, then the blind man finally sees by sight in verses 40 to the end of the passage, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what is it you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has healed you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So Jesus hears what's going on behind him, the blind man, and he stops and commands that he be brought to him. I hope you get the irony. All these people who are trying to shut this man up, Jesus now says, you get to escort him to me. And Jesus will often do these types of things forcing people to acknowledge who he is and his power. And of course, in Mark's gospel, we see Bartimaeus making the first moves and throwing off his cloak and starting to run. And it would be obvious what a blind man wants, wouldn't it? I mean, why ask a blind man what he wants? Of course, he wants to see. But that's not the point. Jesus wants him to make the request explicit in front of everyone and draw that out so that he can put his own power on display in front of them so that they have no excuse as to what they just saw. And so the blind man, of course, asks for his sight, and Jesus grants it immediately. And we know that from the Scriptures that the healing of the blind would be one of the signs that the Messiah has come. In Isaiah 35, as we read this morning, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Jesus opened his public ministry, actually, talking about this. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. And Jesus offered it as evidence of his messiahship as well. In Luke chapter 7, verse 21, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John, John the baptizer. Go and report to him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. To them. And, they would, and John would know, and so would everyone else, that he is really the Messiah the healing of the blind is also an intentional illustration of the spiritual realm as well. You can't miss that, can you? It's a wonderful picture of salvation, of being blind and then being healed by God so that you can see. The prophets spoke with a double meaning when they wrote their prophecies. Jesus fulfilled them with the same double meaning. And most importantly, here in Luke, it's recorded with double meaning. For his readers. He wants his readers to cry out for mercy like the blind man and be healed spiritually. 
Jesus makes the statement again that we've heard many times at the end of the story in Luke's gospel, your faith has saved you. Or you can translate it, your faith has made you well. Again, a double meaning on purpose. So that we see that. The blind man then becomes a disciple. And he follows Jesus and he glorifies God and so do all the people and they join with him. That's a common result in Luke's gospel. Joy at salvation. In fact, that's why he saves the story of Zacchaeus, which many think actually took place earlier in in this time in the city, for the next story. Because that illustrates the joy that comes to people when they understand who Jesus is and salvation has come into their souls. Well, there's much more to come as that story takes us as we go ahead, but here, looking to him for mercy and following Jesus as a disciple is what's really urged upon us by Luke as he writes his gospel account here. Who is Jesus? What has he done? You know, this is actually also interesting in Luke's gospel. This is the last miracle that Jesus will perform before he dies. And it's a great one. And it's one that illustrates far beyond just the healing of the blind and that he's the Messiah, but that he would grant salvation to blind souls. Saving faith is a faith that pleads for mercy from Jesus Christ, who saves us by his cross and resurrection. You know, this desire that we see in this man and the need for mercy upon one's soul, that's a very important matter. That's the heart of the matter. Ultimately, that has to be the why you want Jesus. Because there's nothing more you need than mercy for your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, Jesus will bring so many other blessings into your life. But the core why you put your faith in Jesus has to be because you need his mercy and you need his forgiveness. And if we've already received the mercy of God in Christ, we certainly then understand we need more as our life continues to unfold. And that following Jesus Christ is one that's filled with great rejoicing, great glory, and great suffering. You know, had the blind man heard the passion reminder in verses 31 to 33, he would have believed it. Not like the disciples who didn't. He would have understood it and its clear fulfillment and believed with great excitement. We too have seen Jesus for who he is and understand what he's done and hopefully we've looked to him for mercy and found it in following him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 8, the scriptures say, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, we've heard over and over again through the Gospel of Luke what he expects of his followers, and what he expects of us is everything. But then we also see in our passage today Part of the reason why he expects that is because he gave his everything for us. He laid down his life. And that's worthy of our meditation. 
and will find it spiritually strengthening to our discipleship, which is what all the gospel accounts are about, is following Jesus as a good disciple. And that's what we celebrate together this morning here in a moment on the Lord's Supper, what Jesus really did for us. He gave everything, laid down his life for ours. So at this time, if those who are going to serve communion with me would please come forward.